Today we're excited that we have a, a special guest speaker today. Uh, we have Brother Jason Haygood, along with his wife Robin and daughter Paisley with us. Jason is the preaching minister at the Your Belinda Church of Christ. I got to hear him speak at the fifth annual Defending the Faith Seminar uh, a couple of months ago up in Anaheim. And uh, Jason is an uh, accomplished minister of the gospel of Christ, and we're excited that he's here with us today. So, brother, come, uh, come preach your word to us. Morning, everybody, and uh, Happy New Year. My wife and I first moved to Southern California from Wisconsin a little over 10 years ago. And in that time, we've only ever had the chance to worship with you guys one other time before, and that was a few years ago when we were uh, celebrating our anniversary in San Diego, and uh, I wanted the Sunday morning off, so came and uh, worshiped with you guys, but only one time in 10 years, that's not enough, and so I apologize for that. I'm excited that we get to be here this morning, really grateful for the invitation, and I'm hoping more than anything to encourage you this morning, maybe teach you something along the way, but also... Um, I would like to kind of lay the foundation for hopefully a stronger fellowship between our two congregations in the future. I know it feels sometimes in Southern California like, oh, your Belinda, that's a world away. It only took us 30 minutes to get here this morning with no traffic, right? So we're not that far away, and I hope we can do more things together in conjunction with each other as congregations in the, in the future. I'm excited. I had a chance to have lunch with Ken a couple, few weeks ago now, I guess, to hear about the work that you guys are doing here, and you are in our prayers in that regard. And like I said, I just hope we can get to know each other better. So I hope you have your Bibles this morning. And I uh, encourage you to follow along. We're going to be looking at uh, quite a bit of scripture this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a lesson from the first couple verses of 1 Peter. I uh, have been preaching a series in Yorba Linda out of 1 Peter. And I wanted to share with you the very first lesson in that series because it was a massive encouragement to me as I prepared for it. And I'm hoping it will be an encouragement to you as well. It has everything to do with who we are as people and how we think of ourselves as people, how it is that we think of our existence and our purpose and the, the work that God has given us to do, how we would define ourselves. A lot of people in this world struggle to find identity, but in Christ we find our identity, and we're going to talk about that identity together this morning. So, let's go ahead and start in 1 Peter chapter 1, the first two verses. Before I read this, let me just say, so growing up in, in southern Wisconsin, kind of a little town, a rural area, very rural compared to built up Southern California, we didn't have a lot of opportunities to eat out. Eating out was a big deal for us. And more often than not, it was uh, somewhere like McDonald's after church on Sunday. But there was in the big city that we lived by uh, a buffet. And it was my favorite place to go. Because I got to pick what I wanted to eat, right? You get to go up to the buffet, and as a kid who doesn't get to eat out very often, that was a massive deal. And for me, it meant that I got to eat as much mac and cheese as I could possibly stomach, because that's what I wanted, right? Shocker, I know, growing up in Wisconsin and wanting cheese. But that's what we did. So I got to, you know, completely disregard the vegetables and go right for the mac and cheese. The reason I tell you that is because for much of my life as a young man, I approached Scripture the same way that I approached that buffet, there were parts that I really liked, and so those are the parts I zeroed in on. But I neglected the greater parts of Scripture. And I think sometimes when we pick and choose the passages that we like the most, we forget that there's a story, a cohesive story being told 
from the beginning of Scripture to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, a story that begins in the garden and ends with a garden-like scene in the New Jerusalem once again. And what I want to do this morning in just these two verses is show you how those bigger themes in Scripture come to life really in every page of Scripture. There's so much packed in just these two little verses, and I hope to share some of that with you this morning. So this is how Peter begins his letter to the churches. He starts off like this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The reason I picked this passage is because this is one of those verses, if we're honest with ourselves, it's right up there with genealogies in the Old Testament, right? We skip it, and then we say that we read it, right? We do the same thing with a lot of the introductions in the epistles. We just kind of speed read over the introduction because that's that's Peter just saying, hey, how y'all doing, and then moving on, right? It's not that important. But actually, this introduction is supremely important because of the way that he identifies his audience. He says something profound here to these people, and I hope that I can bring that across in the lesson this morning. He addresses them as elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Some of you might have other translations, and some of them translate this very differently. We'll talk about that in just a minute, but this is how the ESV renders it. Elect exiles of the dispersion. And I want to explain to you this morning how all of us are, in fact, elect exiles of the dispersion. So let's do that. Peter writes his letter from Rome. In chapter 5 and verse 13, he makes reference to the fact that he's writing, giving his greetings from the great lady in Babylon. And I think that Babylon is actually just a veiled reference to the city of Rome. I'll explain why I think that as we get further on into our lesson. But Peter's writing from Rome, and he's writing to churches scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor at the time. And specifically, he talks about Christians meeting in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that's important because as we ask the question, who exactly are these people and why did Peter call them the elect exiles of the Spurgeon, we have to ask one specific question, which is, is he addressing Jewish believers only? And the reason that's a relevant question is because because that terminology, elect exiles of the dispersion, is a very Jewish term. It's a very Jewish thing to say. It's something that Jewish believers would have connected with immediately. But what about Gentile converts to Christ? Those who didn't share in that Jewish heritage, would they have understood what was meant by this as well? Well, a few things to consider. Number one, we know that there were Jews living in these cities that Peter is addressing that. We know that from first, or excuse me, Acts chapter 2 and verse 9. What's happening in Acts chapter 2? Anybody? What significant thing happens in Acts chapter 2? The day of Pentecost, okay? So Peter is preaching the very first gospel sermon, And people are gathered from all over. Jewish uh, believers are gathered from all over to celebrate the Pentecost in Jerusalem. And uh, Luke, in his narrative there, names for us some of the places that those Jews had traveled from. And some of these places are named there. So we know that Jews were living in these cities. But by the time that Peter writes these letters, these congregations weren't made up entirely of Jewish believers, but the gospel had gone into these Greek-speaking areas, and it's just safe to assume that these congregations were made up of, yes, some Jewish believers, but also many Gentile converts. And so it would seem weird for Peter to write a letter to these churches made up of both Jews and Gentiles, but only address 
the Jewish part of those congregations. That makes sense what I'm saying? And so we can safely say that when Peter is addressing these letters, this letter to these churches, he's not just addressing Jewish Christians. He's addressing all Christians. But he's using a Jewish idea to identify them. Now how and why did he do that? In 1 Peter chapter 2, and actually scattered throughout this entire letter, Peter talks about things that make it very clear that he's talking to Gentiles. He references the feudal ways that they inherited from their forefathers. He talks about how they've had plenty of time to live in the darkness of the Gentiles. And he talks about that past life. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 10, he quotes from the book of Hosea, talking about people who were not a people, but now they are the people of God. It's very clear that Peter is addressing Jews and Gentiles. So why then use this very Jewish idea? Well, let's talk about that some more. What exactly is an exile? When you think about that word exile, what do you think about? I think for those of us who are students of the Bible, immediately our minds go back to the story of Babylonian exile. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered the southern tribes, demolished Jerusalem, and took, we know from the book of Daniel, the people into captivity. So they were removed from their home forcibly and taken to a place that they, not, they did not belong. That's what it means to be an exile. And so when we read that word here, it's a very loaded term for us. But it's interesting because when Peter uses this term, I don't think he necessarily means what we think of when we talk about exile. Because he's not necessarily referring to people who have been forcibly removed from their homes. Those Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor had not been forcibly removed by the Roman government and placed somewhere else. They just happened to be living wherever it is they were from. And yet, they were still exiles. The New American Standard Version has this translated a very different way. Instead of elect exiles, they translate it, those who reside as aliens. Now that's a much different idea, isn't it? I reside in California as an alien. <laughs> I've been here long enough, I call this home. But if I'm honest, Wisconsin's always going to be my home. That's where I was born, that's where I was raised, that's where our family remains, that's where the best cheese in the world is, no offense to the happy cows in California, but I am an alien, right? This isn't my home, this is where I live, this is where I reside, I love it here, but this is not my home, I am an alien. That, that conversation about aliens dominates political conversations today, doesn't it? And we in Southern California uh, are privileged to enjoy uh, a culture filled with people from different parts of the world. It's one of the things I love about California most. When my daughter goes to school, not every child looks like her. Not everybody is blonde-haired and blue-eyed. She's got friends from every corner of the planet, and I love that. But we have aliens all over. And I don't use that term in a, derog in a derogatory way because Peter didn't. I just mean people who live here but aren't originally from here. They belong somewhere else. Their heart belongs somewhere else. And so I like the way the New American Standard Bible translates this. Even though I'm using the ESV, I like this idea of those who reside as aliens. Later on, the ESV even uses that terminology, aliens and strangers. It was read for us this morning from chapter 2 in that passage that we started with. The Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the early Christians would have used, uses this same word 
in Genesis chapter 23 and verse 4. And it's a very interesting passage because Sarah has died and Abraham finds himself in a foreign land. And he has to ask those people. He says, I don't belong here. Will you please give me some land so I have a place to bury my wife? And he uses this same term, this alien or stranger or exile term to describe his situation. I'm visiting here with you guys, but this isn't my homeland. And so I have nowhere to bury my wife. Will you please give me some land? And I think we can get an idea then of why Peter uses this word. This idea, not that we've been forced to live somewhere we don't want to, but that no matter where we live, we will always be aliens and strangers and exiles. And I'll explain why in just a minute. Same word is used again in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13. If you'd like to turn over there with me. We're going to read verse 13. We're going to come back to the, the larger context of this passage at the end of the lesson. But in Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, of course, that great hall of fame of faith, as we call it. The Hebrew author is talking about all these great characters of faith from the Old Testament. And then he gets to verse 13 and he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were, and here's our term, strangers and exiles on the earth. God had given them great promises. And they lived longing for the fruition of those promises. And yet for many of them, they never saw those promises come fully to fruition. They lived acknowledging that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. You catch that? It didn't matter where they were, no matter where on earth they were, they were aliens and strangers. We sing that song all the time, or at least we used to, this world is not my home, right? You remember that song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, right? What do we mean by that? Do we mean that we hate the physical creation of God? No, God created this physical earth, he said it was good, he put us here to have dominion over it. We're not saying we hate the planet, what are we saying? We say we don't belong in this World, We belong to a greater kingdom. And so for Peter, when he addresses these Gentile and Jewish Christians as exiles, as aliens and strangers, what is the idea he's getting across? Well, it's an idea the Jews would have, would have had in their heart, part of their identity. The idea that no matter where they were, they didn't really belong there. They were looking forward to something better. And that's what the Hebrew author is getting across to us here. Sorry, having trouble with my clicker. There we go. Okay. In what way have we been chosen? It's a term we don't use in the church a lot. Chosen. But Scripture does not shy away from referring to us as chosen people. In what way have we been chosen? Peter starts the letter talking about chosen exiles. How have we been chosen? Well, the idea here is not that we have chosen to live in a foreign land. How many of you, just out of curiosity, are born and raised in Southern California? All right, that's, that's cool to see. How many of you were born and raised somewhere else? Okay, so looks like the majority of people in this room actually chose to move here, right? Because of the super low cost of living, obviously. Right? Okay. You chose to live here, Okay. This is not the idea that Peter's getting across. He's not saying you chose to pick up and move somewhere else. That's why you're an alien and stranger. When he talks about the chosen part of this, he's talking about not that we have chosen to live somewhere else, but that God has chosen to make his home with us and in us. And this is one of those themes in the Bible that I'm talking about Peter picking up on in this passage. 
We are aliens and sojourners. We are strangers and exiles, not in a physical sense. It doesn't matter where you live. We are aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles, in a spiritual sense. That no matter where we live, we don't truly belong there because we're awaiting a better home. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, when God calls Abraham, do you remember what the first thing God told Abraham to do? Anybody remember? Get out of the country. country. Okay. To move. Leave your father and his household and move out of your homeland to a place that I will show you. And that's what made Abraham such a great man of faith is that he trusted in God enough to do what? To pick up and leave when God told him to. That's an amazing idea. In John chapter 14 and verse 18, Jesus says something incredible there. He tells them that the time is going to come where he won't be there anymore. And they're going to look for him, but they won't be able to find him because they can't go where he will be. And of course, they're totally confused by it. And they actually say, where, are you going to, where is he planning on going? He's not going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, is he? He's not going to go and convert the Greeks, is he? So in their mind, they think, well, he's just moving out of town, right? But the idea is something different, okay? In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, there is a picture given of the new Jerusalem. John sees a new heaven and a new earth, and he sees new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. And the defining feature of that new city is that God will dwell there with his people, This is what I want you to cling to in this lesson this morning. This theme in Scripture that helps us unravel this question of why would Peter call us exiles or aliens or strangers. Okay, hear me out for a minute. Genesis opens up. God creates the world and everything in it, and it's perfect. It's good. And then he creates man. And he puts him in a a specific geographical location that we call what? The Garden of Eden, right? It's defined. It has borders. And in that place... Man has everything he needs, including the tree of life. But to me, the most beautiful part of that whole scene of the garden is that God is walking with man in the cool of the day. Can you imagine a scenario where we don't long to see God one day, but we literally get to walk with him in the afternoons? Can you imagine that? That's the scenario God put us in when he made us. That's what God longs for. That's why we exist. That's why we were created, to live in fellowship and harmony with our God in a place in the garden where heaven and earth overlap and we get to walk with our creator. Imagine that. But of course, what happens? Adam and Eve rebel against God and they're removed from that garden. And of course, we know what happens when they're removed from the tree of life. Now death enters the picture, but even more dramatic than that, they're removed from the presence of whom? Of God. They don't get to walk with God anymore because they're not in the garden. And the whole story of Scripture that unfolds from beginning to end is a story about how God is trying to recapture us, to bring us back into fellowship with Him so that we can dwell with Him again forever. So God rescues uh, Israel out of Egypt. And he takes them into the wilderness. Where is he taking them to? A land that he's going to give them, right? Just like he had promised Abraham. And along the way, he dwells with them. He gives Moses plans for a tabernacle. He has them build the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. And where does God dwell? On the mercy seat. And his presence is before them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. 
You see what I'm saying? God is saying, I'm going to make you my people, and the way that we're going to dwell together is my presence will be among you. God is dwelling with his people. Later on, they would build through Solomon, what? The temple. And you got the Holy of Holies in the temple, and the ark would reside in the temple, and God's presence would be there among his people. It's a phenomenal story. But eventually, Babylon comes, they destroy Jerusalem, and suddenly, God's presence is no longer in his temple. But that's not the end of the story, because now we pick up in the New Testament. And you get to the Gospel of John. Okay, For a, a people longing for God's presence, John starts by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, with, the word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And then you skip down a few verses, and you remember what he says? He says, The Word became, what? Flesh, and dwelt among us. And you know the word that John uses there? It's tabernacle. He's saying, the word tabernacled among us. And that makes sense because Jesus was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What did Jesus do when he took on flesh except illustrate to us this longing God has to be with his people? And so Jesus comes, takes on flesh, and he dwells among us. But he's put to death. His body is resurrected and he ascends into heaven. And now the disciples are worried because if he's going to leave them, what are they going to do without him? And that's when he makes this promise to them. That I will not leave you as orphans. But he's going to send whom? The Holy Spirit. And we know from scripture that where does the Holy Spirit make his home today? In us. What does Paul say to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Do you not know that you are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Do you see this theme in Scripture that God wants to dwell among his people? And so we've got the Spirit living within us as this down payment of sorts of this future realization of the idea that we get to dwell with God forever. And we live in hope of that expectation. And that's so. That's why then the end of Revelation is so exciting because it recaptures the hope of the garden all over again. When Adam and Eve got to walk with their creator in the cool of the day in the garden, guess what happens when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth? We get to dwell with God forever and he will be our God and we will be his people. Do you see this theme from beginning to end in scripture of how badly God wants to be with us? And so, why are we aliens and strangers then? Because we live in a place where while God dwells in us, we are not yet where we want to be in the new Jerusalem, where we get to walk with God again. And until we get to that place, nowhere is good enough for us to call home. We might like our houses. We might like the, you know, I love the weather in Southern California. Even the last couple weeks, as much as it's rained, it's a lot better than Wisconsin in December and January, let me tell you. Right? <laughs> okay. I love living here. But this is not my home. I look forward to something so much better. And that's why we are aliens and strangers. By the way, in the book of Revelation, there are two great cities talked about in Revelation. Anybody know what they are? I won't call on you, Victoria. They are Babylon and Jerusalem. And Babylon is a representative of all of the human institutions, all of the human governments, all of, all of the places on earth that man has created to try to exist apart from the presence of God. And every one of them is broken. Every single one of them is broken. 
And of course, for those Christians that John is talking to in the book of Revelation, there's no greater representation of Babylon than what city? Rome, right? Rome is Babylon. But so is every other great city that's ever occupied the earth. And and this is the key to all of us. It doesn't matter where we find ourselves in time. It doesn't matter where we find ourselves geographically. It doesn't even matter what kind of government we find ourselves under uh, the authority of. None of that matters from a kingdom perspective because all of it is Babylon. And guess what happens to Babylon in the book of Revelation? God destroys it. He brings Babylon to an end. And once Babylon is done away with, guess what comes down and replaces it? The new Jerusalem, where we get to dwell with God again forever. So all of these themes run throughout Scripture, and they're beautiful and they're powerful themes. I think there's a magic word I'm not saying. Okay. This idea of the dispersion, then, becomes so relevant to this discussion because it's a a term that's used to refer to Jews scattered throughout the Greek-speaking world. Like I said, when Babylon came in, captured the southern tribes, took Judah into captivity, that's the story that we read in in the book of Daniel, they had already captured the northern tribes, And when the Persians then come in and take over from Babylon and they release the Israelites to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, that's what we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, we get this idea that like every Jew alive got to go back and live in Jerusalem, but that's not what happened. Most of the tribes stayed scattered. They never came back to Jerusalem. And so we find this term used throughout Scripture in John chapter 7 and verse 35. In James chapter 1 and verse 1, James starts his letter much the same way that Peter does, referring to the church as the dispersion, right? Why? Because we're scattered Jews? No, because we live in that same kind of understanding of our situation. Just like the Jews lived in places they didn't belong and couldn't wait to get back to Jerusalem, we live in a place that we don't belong and we can't wait for the new Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapter 37, I won't read this for time's sake, but you might want to jot this down and do some study on your own. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 15 through 23, there's this really interesting prophecy that maybe you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about before. But God tells Ezekiel about a time where he's going to take a stick that represents the northern tribes, a stick that represents the southern tribes, and guess what he's going to do? He's going to combine them again together into one stick, and they will be ruled by one king, and they will live in one place again. And so for the Jews alive in Jesus' time, they were looking forward to the fulfillment of that prophecy. They had still not realized a time when all the tribes had come back together and been reunited. We get a glimmer of that on the day of Pentecost, but they still had not realized that. So for a Jew living in the first century, they very much understood what it meant to still be living in the dispersion and to still identify as an exile and a stranger. Because no matter where they lived, whether it was Jerusalem or somewhere in Asia Minor, God's promises had not yet been fulfilled because all the tribes had not yet been reunited in Jerusalem. And I'm suggesting to you that Peter is using all of this language to help us connect with that same kind of thinking and mindset. That no matter where we live, this is not home for us. This is not home and it cannot be home because we still wait For that home that God has prepared for us. So let's go back to Hebrews 11. And listen to the rest of this passage. We read verse 13. Let's pick up there. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were. Strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak like this, okay, listen to this. If this is the terminology we are going to adopt for ourselves, if we're going to start thinking of ourselves as exiles and aliens and strangers, then this is what it means. People who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, they're not talking about just going home. How many of you who have moved here from a, another place still get homesick? Anybody? Okay. For me, it's the fall every year. I love California weather, but we don't have fall. We just, we just have wind, and then we call it fall. Wisconsin has fall, and it's my favorite time of the year when the leaves change and you get that, that frost on the ground for the first time. And I'm an outdoorsman, so all my favorite activities happen in the fall. Man, I miss that every year. I, I want to go home in the fall. But that's not what the Hebrew author is talking about. He's making it clear. He's not saying that we just get homesick and we want to go back to where we came from. He's not saying that Abraham missed his father's land, and just wanted to go home. He's saying he, he's longing for something even better. Because listen to what he says. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has, listen to this, prepared for them a city. And isn't it amazing that we get to Revelation and the Bible ends with a picture of that great city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven to earth so we can be with God again. But until that happens, whether you live in your Belinda or Mission Viejo or the ends of the earth, it does not matter because wherever you live, if you are a God-fearing person, a person who has hope in Jesus Christ and all the promises God has made to his people throughout all the generations, then you are an alien and a stranger and an exile. You live in a place that no matter how much you like it, you don't belong here. And I think that is the challenge for all of us. Is to learn not to fall in love with our circumstances. I, I can remember the first year we lived in California. I can remember Robin's parents coming down and spending Christmas with us. And we grilled steaks on the patio on Christmas Day. And I had to pinch myself because I thought, what in the world? How could it be that a place like this exists, Right? I love it here, but I don't belong here. I don't belong here, and I can't get too comfortable here. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge for us as Christians. We want a place on earth that we can call home. I don't know about you guys, but we, over the last few years, and your Belinda have suffered an exodus of our families that have moved outside of California. And I can certainly understand some of the motivation for doing that. It's a lot cheaper to live in other places, right? I understand that. But I've also had so many conversations with Christians over the years who have basically said, we have to leave because there's no way we can raise Christians in California. That's like telling Daniel there's no way he could be faithful in Babylon. Of course we can. We can be faithful anywhere. It does not matter the environment we find ourselves in. God will always empower his people to live faithfully if we adopt the way of the exile and understand what that truly means. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and, their, and they glory in their shame. With minds set on, listen to what he says, earthly things. I'm asking you bluntly this morning, 
Are your minds set on earthly things? Have you fallen a little bit too much in love with the place you call home on this earth? Or are you longing for that city God has built for you? But listen to what Paul says. But we, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We don't fall in love with this world. We long for something better. And I'll leave you with this. The last passage we're going to look at this morning. In Daniel chapter 1, I've referenced this story multiple times, so let's end up here, okay? The story of Daniel, the story of exiles, the story of God's people being removed forcibly from their home and made to live in Babylon. This is our story, if we will adopt the way of the exile. In Daniel chapter 1, we read, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So Daniel and his friends are, are taken from Jerusalem, they are chosen to be special servants on the king's court. And you're thinking, oh, what an honor, right? What an honor to be chosen in that capacity. But listen to what happens. Two things. Number one, they're given new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. We know those stories, right? The story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. But you ever thought about those names? You know what they did, why they gave them those names? I remember when I took Spanish class in high school. They had to give me a different name because Jason wasn't Spanish enough, right? Some of you who moved maybe from other countries have adopted maybe a more uh, American-sounding name. We do that, right? This isn't just a cultural thing. Like, oh, it's hard to say Daniel, so let's give you a better name. They're giving them names. Those names specifically are given to honor Babylonian deities, How offensive would it have been for an Israelite faithful to Yahweh to be given a name that insults Yahweh by pledging allegiance to a foreign god? It's a big insult, isn't it? So they're given foreign names. They don't have any choice in that. Those are the names that they're given. But this is what they do, and this is what I want to get across. Sometimes the way of the exile means that instead of assimilating, Instead of falling in love with where we live now, instead of getting too comfortable in our circumstances, we become just a little bit rebellious. We don't take up arms. We don't go to war. But we let the people around us know that we do not belong here. So how did Daniel and his companions do that? How did they let the people around them know that they were not Babylonian? We go on into chapter 1, and they're given... Food from the king's table. That's like me as a kid getting taken to my favorite buffet, right? I don't have to eat mom's cooking today for once. I get to eat whatever is at the buffet. This is an awesome, awesome deal for them. They get to eat whatever's put out in front of them, and yet, do they eat it? No, they refuse. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And you remember how the story unfolds? The people in charge of them get nervous. Well, you're going to end up getting sick, and I'm going to have to pay for it. And Daniel says, give us a test for 10 days. We're just going to eat vegetables and water, and you decide at the end of the 10 days whether we look healthy or not. You remember what happened? They looked healthier, and so they were allowed to keep their diet, right? But the question is, why? Why did Daniel make such a big deal out of eating at the king's table? And I You've got a couple options for how you're going to answer this. Number one, could it be that they were worried that they were going to serve food that wasn't appropriate for faithful Jews? Maybe they had pork on the menu and they didn't want to eat it. Well, that could be part of the reason. 
But I'm sure everything they served wasn't offensive to a Jewish person and they could have found something to eat. Could it be that they were worried that the food had been previously sacrificed to their foreign gods and they didn't want to have anything to do with that? Well, yeah, that certainly could be part of it. Could it be that the Bible is telling us all to quit eating so much in and out and just eat vegetables and water because we'll look a lot better? Well, I know that's probably true, but that's not the point here. This isn't really a point about diet. This is a point about assimilation and about resistance, and about the rebellious spirit that we have if we adopt the way of the exile. This is about Daniel saying, I will not fall in love with this lifestyle. I will not, I will not be seduced by the quality of food that the king offers me, forget who I really am, and assimilate into Babylonian culture. I will not become Babylonian. And we don't think about little things like diet sometimes, but even little things like what we eat can have a big message. The little decisions that we make in the communities that we live in can proclaim big, powerful messages to the people around us when we are constantly reminding our friends and our neighbors that we don't really belong here. I am an exile. I am an alien. I am a stranger. I am longing for that city God has made me. And so even the little things I do become symbols of that reality. For Daniel, it was something as simple as refusing a specific diet because he did not want to assimilate. He did not want to be bought by the luxury and the splendor of the king. He wanted to be reminded that he belonged to Yahweh and that he was an alien and a stranger and an exile. And I hope I've reminded you of the same thing this morning. You don't belong here. This is a beautiful city. It's a beautiful place to live. I hope you like your house. I hope you enjoy blessings in the new year. But I hope you never grow too comfortable here. I hope the king of this world has not offered you so much to eat that you've forgotten who you are and you only want a home here because what awaits us is so much better than anything we could possibly imagine. We are exiles and it's time for us to adopt the way of the exile. Sometimes that means being just a little bit rebellious but it always means remaining faithful to our God and never losing sight of the new Jerusalem because that is the only place we will ever truly be able to call home. Thank you for your attention this morning. I'll be praying for this congregation, that the Spirit will fill you guys and work through you guys. I'll be praying for your leadership. And I'll be praying for every one of you that in this new year, you can remember who you are and whose you are. I love you. Thank you. Oh.